You're listening to TIP. On today's show, we continue to revisit some of my favorite podcasts from the past in this Millennial Investing Rewind. If you've missed our previous Rewind episodes, we've started to reshare some older episodes that are my favorites for a few reasons. One, we get a bunch of new listeners each week, so the new listeners may not have heard this episode before. Two, even if you've been listening for a while, you may have missed this episode when it originally came out. Or three, even if you've heard it before, it can be a great episode to learn from again. If you've already heard this episode or you're not interested in hearing it, feel free to just skip it. There's no harm in that, and you could pick up with our new episodes next week. Also, if you've been listening for a while, you know about the fee for this show. And if you're new, I want to let you know that we do have a fee for listening to the Millennial Investing and Real Estate 101 podcast. It's not a monetary fee. I don't want you guys to have to pay me anything to listen to the show. I'm actually happy and proud to be able to bring this to you guys for free and provide all of this content for free. But what we ask for the fee is for you to share this show with one friend. For every episode that you like the show, just share it with one friend. I'd love it if you shared this across social media and told hundreds of people, but you don't have to do that. You can satisfy the fee by just sharing every episode that you like with one person. If an episode makes you think of something in a different way or teaches you something new, just share that episode with a friend. And we've made it easy for you to do that by creating what is called starter packs. So what we've done to make it easy for you guys to pay the fee is created these things called starter packs. We've basically created five or six categories that all of these different episodes could fit into from beginner stock market investing to personal finance and a bunch of other different categories. And I've listed out my four to six favorite episodes for that category. So if you want to share the show with somebody, you can tell them to check out the starter packs and they can pick which category and which episodes they want to check out. Or even if you're just looking to find some episodes in a certain category, you could check out those starter packs as well. You can find those by going to theinvestorspodcast.com slash M-I starter packs. That's theinvestorspodcast.com slash MI starter packs. And if you want to connect with me directly, the best place to find me is on Twitter. You can also find me on Instagram. My username on both is the Robert Leonard. That's the Robert Leonard. T-H-E-R-O-B-E-R-T-L-E-O-N-A-R-D. All right, guys, that's all I had for you for this new intro. Everything going forward is going to be from the original show. Hope you guys enjoy it. On today's show, I talk with Greg McEwen about the unpopular and often misunderstood concepts that have made Warren Buffett and Bill Gates ultra successful, and how you can implement those same concepts in your life to achieve success in investing, business, or even your career. Greg is a New York Times and Wall Street Journal bestselling author, an accomplished keynote speaker, and he consults for major companies like Adobe, Apple, Google, Facebook, Pixar, Salesforce, and Twitter. If you're looking to get more content than just the one weekly free podcast, make sure to follow me on Instagram. I post there almost every single day with different ideas about business, investing, the stock market, real estate, and I have new content coming out almost every single day. You can follow me on Instagram with my username, Robert at TIP. That's spelled out Robert, A-T-T-I-P. Now let's dive into the show. 
You're listening to Millennial Investing by the Investors Podcast Network, where your host, Robert Leonard, interviews successful entrepreneurs, business leaders, and investors to help educate and inspire the millennial generation. Welcome to today's show. As always, I'm your host, Robert Leonard, and I'm very excited to have Greg McEwen here with me today. Welcome to the show, Greg. It's great to be with you, Robert. Let's start today's show by talking a bit about your background and how you got to where you are today. You know, I spent 20 years on an adventure, uh, and it all started when I was staring at a piece of paper in my hands with all these scribbles and answers on it. I'd been brainstorming this question what would you do if you could do anything? And I noticed when I looked at the piece of paper that law school wasn't on the list, which was, as it turns out, inconvenient because I was at the time at law school. <laughs> and so that was, the, that was the turning point. I quit law school and, and did what I really wanted to do, which was, well, to teach and write. That's what I wanted to do. But in an entrepreneurial way, I wanted to work with businesses. I wanted to understand how they worked. I wanted to understand the the leadership dynamics and the team dynamics, organizational behavior, and just what is it? I mean, on that piece of paper were a series basically of questions. And one of those questions I think has such relevance for everybody listening today, and it's this, why is it that otherwise successful people and companies don't continue to be successful? They should, but what we find, what I've found as I looked at the data and studied this question is that what should happen doesn't happen. So that's like a driver. That question has been driving me for those 20 years. And that's sort of the background. I've worked with Silicon Valley companies through that for many years and noticed some predictable patterns and so on. But that was really the question that kept me up at night. If anyone knows that what's supposed to happen doesn't actually happen is stock investors. So I think the audience <laughs> is definitely going to know what you're talking about there. What really got you interested in this question though? What happened? Was there an aha moment that you were just like, this is what I want to study. This is what really drives me and I'm passionate about. In the midst of working with Silicon Valley companies and noticing a pattern there called now the paradox of success, let me tell you that pattern and then something happened personally and they connected together. So on the, in the professional observation, I noticed that when a company was small, they got focused and they were able to drive success. Clarity led to success and success created so many options and opportunities, which all sounds like the right problem to have. But it does, in fact, turn out to be a problem. It leads to what Jim Collins has called the undisciplined pursuit of more. And the undisciplined pursuit of more will plateau whole organizations. And so instead of being able to go forward to their, what ought to be their next level of contribution and success, they just can't get there because they're using all of their resources to do too many things at their current level. And right in the midst of all of this, I got an email from my uh, colleague at the time. And it said, Friday between 1 to 2 p.m. would be a very bad time for your wife to have a baby. I mean, that's, I mean my wife was expecting, otherwise, that's an even stranger email to, <laughs> to get. But I, you know, to my shame, I went to the meeting. And afterwards, I, you know, what I learned from that lesson was simple, which is if you don't prioritize your life, someone else will. And that's kind of in hindsight where the idea is connected. Because on the one hand, I was observing the undisciplined pursuit of more in these organizations. And then all of a sudden, I'm having an experience on a personal level where I'm trying to do everything and certainly keep everybody happy and violate something more important for something less important. And what I found is I sort of turned my attention to that particular theme. I found that many people, especially you know, the Millennium Group, feel this, these challenges. People listening can test this right now. 
have they ever found themselves like I was feeling stretched too thin at work or at home? They ever found themselves feeling busy, but not necessarily productive? Have they ever found themselves where their day is being hijacked by other people's agenda for them? And the answer to that question is yes, especially if that has become a regular answer. It means that you're falling into the undisciplined pursuit of more. And the antidote, the way out, and this is what, of course, I'm advocating in essentialism, is the disciplined pursuit of less but better. That's the way out of this conundrum. So what exactly is essentialism if you had to define it? And what does it mean to be an essentialist? Essentialism is the antidote to the problem that we've just been discussing. Problem is the undisciplined pursuit of more. The solution is the disciplined pursuit of less but better. The name for that process is essentialism. Essentialism is a way of thinking. It is to see the world through the lens of what is essential. There's three parts to it. You really create the space to think big, to think great, to think bolder than you've ever thought before, to explore more broadly and more boldly than you ever have in search of those few things that are so valuable, they will change your stance. And then step two is that you start to eliminate all the other stuff. You might find when you find the key things you ought to be investing in, they might be so valuable that 90% of the work that you've been doing or assumed you would be doing just needs to be eradicated. You shouldn't be doing any of it. Far less of that than you were doing before. So that's step two is to eliminate the non-essentials. Actually, to remove that investment, you're no longer playing around with investments. And then step three is to build a system, to execute, to build a system to make it as easy as possible to keep investing in those things that you've identified as being extraordinarily valuable. Now, that's it. That's the process. And it's an ongoing process, a disciplined pursuit of what is essential rather than an undisciplined pursuit of what is non-essential. But the process is explore, eliminate, and execute. That's what essentialism is. As we have this conversation, it's just, I think, about three weeks or so after the new year. And so that's obviously one of the biggest times that people are setting new goals. So how does this idea of essentialism impact how people should set goals? Well, I see there being a paradox. And actually, it's one that even for people that read essentialism or get into it, they sometimes miss. And it's this, you've got to create space to have a far greater vision than you normally have. Now, that doesn't sound like the disciplined pursuit of less, <laughs> but it is so critical. You suddenly discover my family over the break, we spent a couple of weeks coming back again and again to these vision boards that we were creating. So I have four children and my wife, all of us. We just kept coming back, kept asking the questions, what do we really want to achieve? What has 2020 got to be about? And not just rushing into the year, rushing into the email looking bigger so that you can start to make more deliberate trade-offs. This is the core idea. Let me share the core idea and then one illustration of it. The core idea is the driving mindset of essentialism is that almost everything is meaningless noise. Almost everything (laughs) is of low value, but a few things are superbly, incredibly, life-changingly valuable. That's the mindset. Now, if you believe that, let's say as an investor, for example, and of course, there's lots of different kinds of investors that we know, but how might you approach it? If you think everything's approximately equal value, you, you might just kind of try and go with everything. You might try and do what everyone else is investing in, kind of rush in, rush out. 
If you're an essentialist investor, what you would be saying is, I'm going to pay the price to explore broadly until I find the thing that is so valuable, I'm going to go big and keep it for a long time. That would be my strategy. That would be the approximate strategy. And as it turns out, there is an investor that did that. And they had that perspective up front before they became famous. They did go on to be famous. That was their precise... In fact, this investor had a metaphor. They said, they said they knew they couldn't be right hundreds of times in their investment career. They likened it to having a card, 20 punch card, that they could only be right 10 or 20 times in a whole lifetime. They had the understanding that that was enough if you find the right investments. But it also, that perspective says you don't just go and mess around with every investment that comes along and just because other people are doing it doesn't mean you do it. And so that's like the heart of it. And we talk about Warren Buffett, of course. And uh, I mean, it is now, as you look back on a lifetime of the most successful investor in history, you find that 90% of his wealth can be traced to 10 investment decisions. What's fabulous about that is that he knew it up front. It was a deliberate understanding. It was a, an understanding of how the world actually works. It's not a wishful thinking. It's just how it works. And so our job is not to shovel coal from one point to the other as much as possible. It is to find the diamonds, and that makes it worth the effort necessary in order to find them because they're so valuable once you do. Warren Buffett says that his, his investment strategy is not this borders on lethargy. I mean, that's amazing. It's not the most successful investor in history that his investment strategy borders on lethargy. He wants to write things, then he invests big and he keeps it forever. That's his whole strategy. That's so different than the average investor, whether, in, whether we're talking about in stock or whether we're talking about entrepreneurs, they do the opposite. They think the opposite is the way to do it. Just do everything you can, hustle on everything all of the time, and then you're going to somehow get to the top. And that's just not what you actually find produces those kinds of results. Why do you think so many people have trouble with this? Why do you think more people aren't able to replicate what Warren Buffett has done? I mean, like you said, I mean, this isn't a secret. This is very common knowledge and a lot of people know it. So why aren't more people able to replicate it? They don't replicate it because they're living in success. Even if they don't feel successful, if you're listening to this and you think, well, I'm not that, I don't feel that successful, so much I haven't done, so much I want to do, that, that's fine, of course. But you are incredibly successful by virtue of the fact that you are able to listen to this, comprehend it, means that you're literate, it means that you're well, almost certainly live in a free society or largely free society, that it's also largely stable. I mean, these conditions are the rarest the rarest kind, if you take the broad picture of the, the history of humanity. And so, of course, people are blind to this, especially as a millennial. We were born into stability. Now, I know it doesn't feel like that with a variety of chaotic things that go on and, and social media and news gives us the impression of sort of chaos all the time. And, but it's still the most prosperous, the most successful, the most democratic, the most safe, the least likely scenario that you will die at war than in almost any other time in human history. And that means that everybody around you has more options and opportunities than they know what to do with as well. We're born into the internet. Not quite, but you know, almost. Reaching adulthood, sure, the internet is now a, a phenomenon. Massive opportunity, every direction. And so all you have to do is be born in that environment and just do what everyone else around you is doing, and you're going to miss the strategy. You're going to miss this other alternative path because Everybody, this, the number of shiny objects is immense. I mean, it's not a few more than it was before we were born. 
you go back a couple of hundred years, the number of, you don't understand how hard it was to even get a book. To just own a book was significantly challenging. The amount of opportunity and options have exponentially increased, just absolutely massively so. And we've just all been born into it as if it's all normal, and we are totally unprepared for it. As a result, the path of least resistance is just to do way too many things. Start doing it, start doing it. Follow this thing and that thing in every direction without realizing it's even a strategy, even a choice. What Warren Buffett demonstrates and helps us to remember is that there is an alternative strategy, and it is for the taking. It's just not one that's being modeled very often. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey, everyone. It's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break, and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Hey guys, have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGPT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only does the research and analysis for you, but also allows for dynamic discussions? Well, wonder no more. Meet Meka, your AI-powered stock research assistant, now enhanced with real-time stock data. Let Meka do the heavy lifting for you to significantly reduce your research time. And the best part, Meka is 100% free. Ask Meka questions like, explore the financial health of Apple through a summary of its balance sheet. Compare the financial statements of Apple and Tesla. What is the analyst price target for Microsoft? What is the social sentiment analysis of Amazon and millions of other queries right at your fingertips? Visit Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A.com. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise Flagship Fund before investing. This and other information can be found on the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com flagship. This is a paid advertisement. All right, back to the show. Now let's talk about that idea in the context of a career or even a side hustle. I mean, it makes complete sense from an investor perspective, but I think a lot of people listening to the show today work a corporate job where the amount of time that they're putting into their work is often used as an indicator of their success, right? If their boss sees them putting a lot of time into something or that they're really busy, that makes them look successful. But that doesn't necessarily equal success or importance. Why is that? Well, organizations can often get into this. Organizations are breathing the same air as the people that breathe air who work in the business, right? They, that's true for the actual air, but it's also true for cultural air. If you're a non-essentialist environment outside of the workplace, you're going to walk into that place and you're going to keep thinking like that. 
And so the key, what I see people do that break with this is they, um, they sort of wake up to the fact that this is, all, this is a choice. This way of making decisions is a very particular strategy. And, and they either wake up to it because they get worn out, exhausted, burned out, or they wake up to it because they're thoughtful and, and selective and, you know, so Warren Buffett style. For some people, that really is a very different way of thinking for them. They, they have never thought that way. In fact, I would say the book is more countercultural than I realized it was. And so then, then I, what I see is, is this pattern, is that they start reading it and they start going, oh my goodness, I've been seeing it all wrong. I can see it in a new way. The opportunity is enormous if I can figure this out, because instead of just doing more stuff, I'll do more of the right things, those few things that matter. I can go to the next level personally and professionally, and they get other people on board. And so they, they don't, you know, I've learned not to try to be an essentialist on your own. You want to do it collectively or not at all. And so I've seen the most successful essentialists. They don't just, hey, I'm going to be the only essentialist in my workplace. They get other people. They say, okay, let's read this book together. Let's talk about this together. Let's introduce the language of essentialism into our conversation. And so then they're able to talk in a way they couldn't talk before. They can ask each other. They can say, well, look, is this essential? Is this really what we want to be doing? Is this the right trade-off? What trade-off should we be making? You can ask, well, look, if we could only do one thing this year, what's that breakthrough thing? What really is it? We can only do one thing, one really important thing. What's the priority? And all of this is a new way of speaking and talking, and they grow this. I mean, I normally get involved in these organizations as a result of one of these people that grows the influence, and they'll say to me, okay, we'll come and we'd like you to speak at this event or something like that. I'm sort of, in a way, I'm, the story's already been, been written. The first few chapters have already been written by the time I'm there because somebody woke up, saw the non-essentialist costs, saw that they could become an essentialist, and they grew an essentialist culture around them. And, and uh, that's what to do. Don't do it on your own. Don't try to be the only essentialist in your world. It won't work. <laughs> people will think you're a bit crazy. But if you get them on board, it's amazing what people can do. It's just amazing. I just talked to a group. Let me just share this one illustration exactly what I'm describing here. Is that somebody came across essentialism. They introduced it into their company. That company produces big tours, big, massive, I mean, like music tours for artists that everybody listening to this would have heard of. And, and normally the game, the name of that game is do as many tours as you can with as many people as you can, and, and that's how you're going to be successful. But after essentially, he said, okay, that's, that's not it. What we need to do is do the right tours for the right people. The idea is that they'll be more successful. So within one year, they reduced their number of tours by 40%, 40% less tours, but they in, revenue increased by 4x. That's what it looks like in play. Couldn't have done that on his own. He got the whole team around this to think about what really was valuable and what was just noise. So how do we do that? How do we determine what is important and what's just noise? You know, it's not actually that hard. I would say it's kind of easy, but it's not, it's not what is normally done. That doesn't make a thing hard. It just means you have to be aware that other people aren't already doing it. So you have to sort of take a path less travel. It looks like creating space to really figure out, just to think about it, to even ask the question, what's the most valuable work I can do this year? Your brain and spirit is like a Google search engine. It will provide you answers depending on the questions that you type in. If you type in the question, hey, what's in my inbox today? What emails do I respond to? What can I, how can I respond fast? How can I get to zero inbox? Well, then it will help you to do that. 
If you ask instead, what are the, the biggest, greatest mission that I could imagine for my life? Okay, well, then it will process that. So I'm suggesting to ask essentialist questions first to explore that step one, to explore what is really valuable and to pause for a moment, to, to live in the uncomfortable pause. I'll give you an illustration of this. Again, this will sound counterintuitive even to people that are familiar with essentialism. Steve Harvey invited me to speak at his, uh, he has a, an annual camp. These are for single moms and their, uh, and their, their basically at-risk sons, at-risk of, you know, of, uh, of crime and getting infected in, with sort of negative uh, energy and, uh, and patterns. And one of the things he said, it was really interesting because we know Steve Harvey as, a, as the entertainer, as a comedian, the talk show host even, but, but this was really different. I mean, this was, this was him raw and passionate and visionary. And one of the things he said to this whole group once they were all together, he said, he said, listen here, he said, the problem, the problem for all of you here is that you are asking for, you are asking for too little from your life. I mean, actually, he put it this way. He said, you're asking God for too little. That's what he said. He said, you're praying, please help me to get the rent check. He says, and, and, and you always do. One way or another, that happens, that works out. He says, stop asking for that. You've got to dream so much bigger than that and ask for something way better. And he suggested something that I started after his suggestion. He said, you go home. He said, here's the challenge. You go home and you write, I think he said 400 things. But then he adapted to the group. He said, he said that's too many. Just go do 100. Of the biggest vision that you can come up with for your life, the biggest things you want, you really want. He said, now predict what happens. He said, what's going to happen is that you're going to get to item 23 and that's it. You're out. That's it. You don't know anything else. Those things are already like bigger than you can believe, bigger than you can imagine. He says, keep pushing, keep thinking, keep allowing yourself the space. I've started that and every item on the list that I have now is significant and way beyond what I believe is possible. And that's exactly what's so great about it. And maybe this all sounds very pie in the sky, but it's like, that's the idea of creating space to explore. What you're looking for is the stuff that's 90% or above important, valuable, significant, game-changing. You're looking for that. And most of the time, people are just so reacting to the latest text, news update, social media post, news update about someone's social media posts, and so on. Their mind is consumed with this total trivia. And instead, you could be envisioning turning that off, pausing, and really thinking what could be. And out of that, now, I'm not suggesting people go and do those 400 things. That truly would be non-essentialist. But you first think big and great and then curate. Step two, you start to look through the list and you say, okay, well, which of these things really matter to me? You keep coming back to them and you start selecting them. Which things could I actually go after next? But my goodness, the exercise is so superb. And what I've learned about it is that, is that what starts off as seeming impossible starts to seem you know, improbable, then implausible, then maybe it's doable, then it's even maybe it's achievable. And then it suddenly starts to feel like it's going to happen. And all the while, the items that you are used to work on are irrelevant. You don't want to spend any time doing that stuff if you can help. That's what I think. The other side of this that's so interesting too, is it's not only just deciding what's essential or what's the most important things. It's also learning what to say no to. And I know you think that's such an important practice. So talk to us a bit about how it's not just finding out what's important, but it's also how you learn to say no to things. Everybody's saying no all the time. Question is, is whether they're saying no to the important essential stuff or the trivial stuff. That, that, that's, that's the whole issue. 
as soon as you have as soon as you have a library you have way more than you could ever read as soon as you, the internet exists you have literally more options and ideas and things you could learn and study and all that than you could possibly consume so we are saying no every time we make any decision to do anything what i'm encouraging people to do is to say make sure you're saying no to the trivial stuff let important essential the vital few come up to the surface think of steve jobs when he comes back to apple a company that's months from bankruptcy at that time he has 330 products what's his intuition i mean this is amazing to me if you were trying to save a company and you had months to do it and the company has 330 products what would you do because i think what most people would do is okay everyone let's have an all hands let's really go for it guys let's go after all of this thing we've got lots of products we got to just up our game on this might be the kind of inclination his orientation is completely different and i want people to be thinking right now why did he act this way what did he have to believe to act this way what he does is eliminates 320 of those products so he's down to 10 products neatly divided into 2 by 2 these four product categories that is what he did you'd have to believe something about the world in order to operate that way you'd have to believe like an essentialist you'd believe that only a few things mattered and your job was to find them and not just go along with what everything else that everyone's doing and not just do things because hp is doing them or microsoft's doing them or someone else is doing them in your category but because you believe in them and you really have done the work to find that they really matter and that they excite you that you want to go do them and this of course is the key to the whole renaissance at apple this is the the journey this is the key to them becoming the most valuable company uh, you know in the world whatever day we happen to be measuring so that's an example of the elimination at work in quite an extreme way i remember hearing in one of your videos or one of your talks that you gave about this one word answer to why bill gates and warren buffett have been so successful talk to us a bit about that the story is told in snowball that, that when they first met it was because bill gates mother would have these you know dinners and lunches and so on and each invited bill gates and warren buffett to uh, her son and warren buffett to come and they were chatting and they went around the room and they asked the question okay give us one word why are you successful one word and both bill gates and warren buffett said focus that is what it was i mean the, the relationship between bill gates and warren buffett is is also worth I mean, that's the way it begins but it's interesting to watch it as it's evolved but But Bill Gates, I mean, at that time, rather, he's the CEO of Microsoft. He's, his calendar is packed full with so many things in so many different directions. <laughs> and he's, uh, he meets Warren Buffett and they get talking about schedules. And Warren Buffett pulls out of his pocket his calendar, paper calendar, flicks through it, shows him his schedule for the week. On one of the weeks, there is one item scheduled on Warren Buffett's calendar, and it was to get his hair cut. He protects his time so conscientiously, so disciplined. Why? Because he wants to create space to keep exploring all the different options and then saying no to almost all of them. Hey, Warren Buffett says it this way. He says he says he's quoted as having said, "The difference between successful people and very successful people is that very successful people say no to almost everything." This is the line. You can see it in Bill Gates when he then later goes on to start his think weeks where a week every 6 months he's cutting out all noise and just reading and trying to connect the dots, trying to understand what matters and what doesn't matter why is he doing that how could you justify a week of your schedule i mean maybe it doesn't sound so extreme to everybody listening right now but as soon as you imagine doing it yourself it still sounds extreme you know none of us have anything like the excuse that bill gates does in the midst of all of that noise as microsoft takes over the world you know just this massively growing exponentially growing company he gets it 
you're going to spend a week because otherwise you're going to miss what you're going to miss the few, the essential one, two things that are going to the trends that are going to shape years and years within the technology industry. I was just speaking at an event where, where the CEO of VMware said, I've learned that you don't even have to be the best in your market. You just need to be on the right side of the trend. You don't have to be incredible, but you've got to be on the right side of the trend. That's how powerful trends are. This is the idea. You've got to find those few things that really matter and ride those trends. You ride those waves for a long time so that they're serving you all the time rather than you're fighting against. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey, everyone. It's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break, and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Hey guys, the Range Rover Sport leads by example. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capability and combines assertive on-road performance with the signature Range Rover refinement that you'd expect. The third generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet and redefines sporting luxury. It's got advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification, which offer new levels of comfort and refinement. The purposeful cockpit-like driving position sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. Award-winning Pivi Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. You can also enjoy a dynamic drive in total comfort with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. All right, back to the show. This whole conversation is really speaking to me because it's something that I'm really trying to focus on here in 2020. I made a goal this year to not read any new books. Because over the last two years, I've averaged about 40 or 50 books a year. And I said, am I really understanding the main concepts out of all of these books? Am I really getting what's essential out of these books? Am I really understanding it and grasping it and applying it? And I knew the answer was no. And so I decided that I was not going to read any new books. I was only going to go back and read old books that I've already read before and really make sure I understood and took out everything I could. 
So I'm excited. I, I love this conversation that we're having. And I want to talk about Gary Vaynerchuk for a second because he's obviously a social media mogul and he's all over the place these days. And one of the things he often talks about is how he believes a lot of his success has come from working on a lot of different things at the same time. While Gary Keller, who's also been very successful, the best-selling author of The One Thing, talks about how people should only focus on exactly that, just one thing. Is there a time and a place to not focus on one thing? Is it maybe dependent on the person? We've touched upon this conceptually already, which is that you've got to explore first. The first principle of essentialism is not elimination. And sometimes people forget that. It's so compelling, the idea of elimination. Oh my goodness, how can I say no? Oh my, and their detention is brought to that. The principle, the first element of essentialism is exploration to find out what matters, connect the dots. And so you do need to invest a disproportionate amount of your time to being in that mode, but not to go and commit to everything. You want to be exploring and connecting the dots. Uh, this, is, this is Steve Jobs on, on campus walking between the different classrooms. And you know, when he quits, he quits actually attending the university, but he still goes and explores and learns and sees and wants to connect the dots. That's uh, Warren Buffett not backing up every single thing in his, his calendar. That's not laziness on his part. That's not being disengaged in his part. That is a strategic, disciplined, uh, passionate choice because he's trying to make the greatest contribution he can make. And so what I find is that you know, the best entrepreneurs are doing this duality, exploration followed by extreme exploration, followed by extreme elimination. I was with a uh, co-founder of Airbnb a little while ago, and Brian, and he was telling Brian Chesky, and he was, he was saying, uh, he told me the story, first of all, about the early days of Airbnb, and it follows the map back to the beginning. At the beginning, he said, we were all over the place. We were exploring all sorts of things. And they, they had an idea for cereal at one point. They were going to make cereal. And they almost were a cereal company, but no one really wanted to invest in their idea. Actually, it was politically themed cereal, no less, which just doesn't sound like a super good idea. But, but I guess Airbnb didn't sound like a super good idea at the beginning, right? Is they rent uh, some air mattress in somebody else's house. Uh, it's, it's a bit wild too. But then they had this situation where they had an investor conference coming up 90 days in the future. And they said, okay, this is it. It's time to get serious. We have 90 days to prove that we are ramen profitable, which meant that, meant that if they ate ramen noodles three times a day, they would be technically profitable at the end of 90 days. And he said that was the most focused we'd ever been as a company. Then or since, for 90 days, we lived and breathed that single goal to try and prove that this could work. And at the end of 90 days, they did, and they got that first round of funding, and, and they're off to the races. When he was telling me the story, he said he had just sent out an email to his whole group, and he reiterated this to me. He said, the whole company at the time, I don't know certainly many thousands of employees by the time he was talking to me about this. And he said, uh, he just sent out this email and in it, he said, look, my biggest concern for the company is we're going to do too many things. We're going to be pulled into too many different directions by our success. And our challenge, number two concern for him is we're not going to come up with the next big thing. And that sounds like a, a contradiction. If you follow this thread of this conversation today, it's not a contradiction. This is exactly the idea. Yes, explore, but don't follow everything. Don't invest in every good new idea and just keep going on it. Explore, think, go broad, go bold. Then be just as bold in your editing. Become a chief editing officer. Edit all the junk out. I'm writing a new book now. And the process is exactly as I'm describing it. Explored for years, much longer than most authors take. You're supposed to do, you're supposed to write a book 18 months after the first book. And I, I my agent in publishing, has been ready for that for years now. 
And I just kept on exploring and thinking and learning and trying to make sure we're in the right direction, you explore much more broadly. And then over time, keep whistling it down until you find something that hopefully is really relevant to people. And I think that we have that now. And I'm, I'm really excited. I can't talk about what it is, but I, I'm really excited about the direction. And I think it's going to be relevant to a lot of people and be the right idea. And that's what we want. We don't need, you don't need 10 books. Nobody needs 10 books from Greg McEwen every six months popping out a new book. He wants is, is just something that's really right and works. Well, I'm looking forward to it. I can't wait till it comes out so I can give it a read. What is a common piece of advice that you often hear given by other experts that you don't think is necessarily true? And how would you make that into good advice? I think that sometimes the idea of being passionate is an overemphasized piece of advice. Do what you're passionate about. Follow your passion. Follow your passion. There's something right about that, but there's, it's overdone. And it's overdone to the extent that some other really important things get underemphasized. For example, Steve, come on. Surely, the first thing we should be thinking about, the advice to follow your passion is perfectly okay, but only if it's kept in its proper bounds. It's a little bit like the uh, separation of powers. It's fine to pursue one's passion, but, but not to the extent that you don't develop competency actually become great at something. Steve Martin's asked all the time, oh, how do I get an agent? How do I get an in? How do I get a show? How do I get... And he says, shouldn't at least one of the first questions be, how can I be great at this thing? Competence first. And he's, he's fond of saying, be so great, be so good, they can't ignore you. And I really think that is right. You know, figure out what your actual competency is and keep developing it into something that's actually meaningful. I have underestimated the effect of this in my life. And I have, I have sometimes underestimated how competency has developed over years. Sometimes people will say, you know, oh, I'd like to teach, right? I'd like to be on the speaker's circuit. I'd like to have a best-selling book. And I, I, my general, generally, my inclination, at least, is to say, well, good, you can, you know, go do this great thing. You can. But I have sometimes found that I gave that advice to somebody and they did. They run after and do it. And they gave up the thing they were actually competent in. And I had underestimated how over 20 years I developed, to whatever extent I have, competency as a writer in teaching, in speaking, in working with companies. And, and it all adds up. And in 20 years of being really focused on these areas, it all adds up. And so it's that if you want to do it, it's great. Just be willing to go lean years to become really competent at it. And then you have every reason to, to expect that you will be able to do great things. What is the number one piece of advice you'd give to someone listening to the show today that wants to achieve more success in both life, investing, and business? Ultimately, it's got to be less but better. Explore, yes, but do fewer things. A friend of mine who's now the um, CEO of LinkedIn, Jeff Wiener, he says it slightly differently. He says, fewer things done better. Fewer things done better. But it's the same idea. Uh, another way it was said brilliantly in a book by Morton Hansen, he did research on 5,000 employees trying to discern, not just discern, to scientifically demonstrate the difference between the average performers and the superb performers. The most important correlated item he found, he, he wrote up as the phrase, first less, then obsess. That was a lovely way of saying, again, a similar idea. Fewer things done better. Greg, thanks so much for your time. I personally really enjoyed this conversation. I think for the millennial audience that's listening today, I think it's a, a message that they need to hear with so much information thrown at us 
you know, whether it be social media or just all kinds of different avenues. I think it's a really important message to get out there, especially these days. Where can the audience go to connect with you and just learn more about all the things you have going on? I do write a newsletter. I wasn't for actually quite a while, but I've I've sort of found my uh, found my passion of you know, my voice. I shouldn't use the word passion after just having talked that down to that. <laughs> and so I've been writing more recently again on the newsletter. So enjoying the conversation, uh, the ongoing pursuit of less but better. I'll be sure to put a link to that in the show notes so that you guys can go check it out. I'll also put links to all of Greg's social media, his book, everything in the show notes. You guys can go check it out. I highly recommend it. I know I really enjoy the content. So I think you guys will as well. Greg, thanks so much for coming on the show. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. All right, guys. That's all I had for this week's episode of Millennial Investing. I'll see you again next week. Thank you for listening to TIP. To access our show notes, courses, or forums, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.